Hello and welcome to Start Your Week in the Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. I've got Arthur Snell with me this morning, getting up early. Former High Commissioner for Trinidad and Tobago and International Man of Mystery. Hi Arthur, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks Andrew. Did you have a nice weekend? What one last pint in a sodden beer garden with horizontal rain? Well, that you know, it's a it's a very noble English tradition, isn't it? And I'm always keen to uphold these things. Well, that is the major story of the week, isn't it? Because the next phase of unlocking, supposedly today, May the seventeenth, was built as this great day of celebration, hugs, pubs, cafes, holidays, all that kind of thing. It's turned into a, a bit of a day of trepidation. Health experts are warning people not to take full advantage of the new freedoms because of the the growing India variant. Arthur, I mean, we emphasise over and over that we're not epidemiologists on this podcast, but will you be hitting the pub this evening or will you be holding back? Because I think I'm going to be holding back. Well, I'm, I will be holding back, but that's partly because it's a Monday. You know, you've got to face <laughs> yourself. But I do think, you know, I, yes, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I did have a chat with one uh, last night about this. Um, and I think the the transmissibility of the Indian variant is causing a lot of people a lot of concern and particularly the way it seems to tra- transmit through the air. And basically, people are still trying to figure out what the score is with this with this new variant. The science is still being done, and therefore there's a lot of uncertainty. Does this, the kind of front page rhetoric we're seeing today, you know, get the shots in, happy Monday, does it match the public mood? Because, okay, okay you know, you only know your own social circle, and you know your own friends, but you know, I'm hearing a, a, a lot of caution, and maybe it's because I'm a middle-aged person, not a crazy sort of 22-year-old who's def- desperate for a pint, but I'm hearing a lot of caution, and people are being very wary. And even some of the papers are saying, happy hour for now. Do you think that the public mood is perhaps not quite as gung-ho for this? I think so. I think there's a lot about this idea of there being, a, you know, a sort of pathway that the government it couldn't possibly alter it's kind of final glide path into, you know, normal life, which we expect is is later in the summer. And yet I just wonder whether actually most British people, if the government said, well, look, that was the original plan and we've had to tweak it because of events that we, we weren't in a position to know about, I don't think that many people would have a big problem with it. Obviously, you know, some politicians would want to make hay from that. So, yeah, I do wonder whether there's a slightly kind of false bravado being particularly being promoted by some of the newspapers, which is sort of forcing this point unnecessarily. Well, Johnson has been saying people should take this next step with a heavy dose of caution. Is is this a roundabout way of saying, well, if it goes wrong, it's on you? Well, I definitely, I think there is a bit of that. And, and of course, this is a government, particularly Johnson himself, not very good at taking responsibility for things and quite good at handing it out to other people. So no doubt that that there there may be some sort of future point, of course, we hope it doesn't come to this, where the, the message from the government is, well, it's a bit like the teacher saying, you know, we, we thought you could be trusted, but you showed us you couldn't, and, and that sort of argument. That finish line that you sort of mentioned, the June 21st one, where we were told full unlocking of, of everything, now looks very much at risk. What is the political price for Boris Johnson if he does put back full reopening? You, as you've just said, you think, a lot of the public will be fairly reasonable about that and will, under, will, will understand it. But his own party, his extremely vociferous COVID recovery group, which is desperate to push unlocking as, as quickly and as fully as possible. Is there a political price that he would pay if he had to do that? I suppose that there must be, because that really has to explain the sort of current approach. And, and, and as you said, his own party, but also, you know, the media, you've got 
yes, it's all the, the, the sort of newspapers on the right, but but very much representing different constituencies. So the Sun has been quite sort of aggressively saying we mustn't slow down, and the Daily Telegraph has also. So you're sort of covering everything from the Red Wall to the kind of traditional Tory shires. For whatever reason, the politics seems to have coalesced around this idea that it was all very well doing a lockdown in 2020, but really 2021, we've just got to get on with it now. Now, is that because a lot of these people have been vaccinated and therefore they feel differently to those that haven't? I'm not sure, really. Well, I mean, we heard some quite incredible testimony on Oh God, What Now last week uh, from Jonathan Calvert and George Arbuthnot, who have written failures of state about the government's response to the pandemic. Uh, They are the Sunday Times Insight team. And essentially what they were saying was that uh, doing the first lockdown late was excusable, but the second and third were absolutely not. Those deaths are squarely on Boris Johnson, was the quote. You know, what, what happens if there is another surge brought on by a new variant, which we know about, exacerbated by unlocking, which was in our power, we didn't have to do it. I mean, strangely, the past record suggests actually not much consequence of Boris Johnson. Yes, although, of course, there is now a commitment to hold a COVID inquiry. And I also wonder whether, because we are getting somewhere close to what might be the end of this, and and I don't mean the end globally, but particularly Mm. in this country, you know, you, you reach a point where a large proportion of the population will have been vaccinated I think a lot of people are now turning to the idea that, well, we can take a step back and take a quite hard look at the decisions that were made. And, and you know, that the people who, who were prepared to give the government a pass in the middle of a crisis might be rather more critical, you know, when, when a bit more time has passed. So I wonder whether there is a, there is a point here that the government has a greater awareness, and particularly Boris Johnson himself, that there may well be consequences eventually. Of course, they won't be immediate, but, but you know, in, in, in the medium term. Yeah, and that inquiry, as you pointed out, will be taking very much taking its time, probably not reporting until after the next election. Governments do have form for this, but it does seem particularly irksome, shall we say, that the the excuse, the ready-made excuse that this will all be dealt with by the inquiry in due course is now available for everything, whatever goes wrong. This will be dealt with in due course by an inquiry. Of course. And we still don't know just how sort of independent this inquiry will be. You know, over the years, British governments have actually been quite good at sort of staffing up fairly serious um, uh, sort of inquiries, whether we're talking about the sort of Bloody Sunday issue or Chilcot on Iraq and so on. But if you look at the track record of Boris Johnson, I'm not sure that he would uh, want the rules to be uh, set in a way that that cause him much concern, if you see what I mean. Yeah, it's going to be Toby Young and Lawrence Fox, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Um, so what, what do we know about the, the India variant? Uh, and of course, there's the big question mark. Should we be calling it the India variant at all? Because, uh, you know, there's been warnings that it might uh, increase racist violence against people of Indian descent, that it's, you know, the, the, the place of origin is not as important as the, the composition and the nature of the, of the mutation. What, what do we know about it? SAGE says it's like 40 to 50% more transmissible. But as you mentioned a minute ago, we are more vaccinated now. Yes. So what we know, I think, is that there is rather more of it about in the country than was previously realised. And of course, there's a very big question there about the fact that travellers from India were were still uh, permitted to come to this country at a time when India 
had a horrific outbreak raging, and this is a country with a billion people, many of them living in extraordinary poverty, whereas at the same time, the government had closed down immigration from Bangladesh and Pakistan, both of which had a much lower degree of uh, of, of COVID in, 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 the, in the population. So there is something there about the government's earlier decisions. But in terms of the variant itself, and I can understand the arguments about not attaching a name to it that can be misused and misinterpreted. As you've identified, it's very, very highly transmissible. This question of transmission in the air is important because basically two-metre social distancing, which we've all now sort of, you know, incorporated into our normal behaviour, wouldn't really help you in that context. And then the final thing is, it's it's thought that the vaccines are still good against the India variant, but that's not known absolutely yet. So, so there are a lot of things that, you know, that need to be figured out. Basically. Yeah. And it's prevalent in, in a lot of quite disparate areas, Bolton, Blackburn, Moray in Scotland, Hertfordshire, Cambridge, London, because we've got people from you know, coming and going from everywhere still, it, it doesn't seem to be geographically locked into into a single area where it can be contained and dealt with. Relatedly, though, holidays are supposedly back on. Thomas Cook told the BBC that the number of people booking to travel abroad was still small, and 75% of its bookings were for Portugal. Even so, travellers are numbering only in their hundreds, not in their thousands. Again, do you think people are ahead of the government here? They've realised or accepted that it's probably now is not a good time. Well, certainly from my social circle, what I know is that plenty of people have made bookings of the type that are completely cancellable and refundable. And most people are not saying, I have to get abroad this year. Most people are saying, look, if it's going to be possible, that would be great. But if it's not possible... You know, there are there are bigger fish to fry. The government is advising against non-essential trips to places on the amber list. So that's places like Spain, France and Italy. And the travel industry is saying the guidance is expected to be ignored by some holidaymakers. Experience has shown really that people do like clear and unambiguous rules. So why are we getting this woolly advice again? You know, advise, advising against or careful now in the Father Ted sense. I wonder whether, um, you know, that the, there's, again, there's a sort of lot of quiet lobbying going on within the party. You know, maybe there's huge groups of people within the Conservative Party, but also the kind of conservative end of the media who are kind of make, making these points in the background. But let's not forget, you know, the government has provided this green list and it's got a lot of interesting and attractive destinations on it, such as the South Sandwich Islands. Um, you know, Tristan da Cunha. These are all places that I think have been overlooked by the British public. Okay, we should move on and look at the terrible situation in Israel and Gaza, which is intensifying with what appear to be the heaviest Israeli airstrikes so far in Gaza City and Hamas continuing to launch rockets into civilian areas. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said the conflict is heading for an uncontainable security and humanitarian crisis. Arthur, getting into the rights and wrongs of this is an absolute quagmire. We're not going to do it here. But why is this happening now in particular? What has triggered this? I mean, obviously, we saw the trigger events of the evictions and the protests around the Al-Aqsa Mosque. But behind that, why did those trigger events take place now to generate what seems to be this completely destructive and pointless latest episode? Yeah, so I think what's happened is various uh, long-term trends in both Israel and Palestine have kind of crashed together 
at this particular moment. So you mentioned this issue of the evictions and the ongoing tensions in East Jerusalem. So that's the bit of Jerusalem which is still regarded as sort of Palestinian. But there's a lot of pressure, particularly from some of the kind of more hard right figures in Israeli politics to sort of push on to East Jerusalem and and sort of claim that uh, for Israel. So that's one factor. The other factor is, of course, that Israel's politics is in a mess. They've had four general elections, I think, in, in, in the past year. They can't really find anybody to replace Netanyahu, who's been prime minister, you know, for, for so long. But at the same time, Netanyahu can't quite get together a coalition that is stable. So Netanyahu increasingly reaching out to these hard right, uh, very kind of aggressive, uh, sort of nationalist hardline Jewish parties that have sort of traditionally been at the fringe of Israeli politics, Netanyahu's considering bringing them into government. And then on the Palestinian side of things, you've got Hamas. Now, Hamas, as, as is well known, you know, seized power in Gaza back in 2007, kicked out the, the Palestinian Authority at that time. But Hamas has increasingly been kind of losing its credibility and its grip on the younger generation in Gaza, which is not surprising because life in Gaza is horrific. It's just a ginormous prison. And of course, Hamas bears most of the responsibility for that. But of course, Israel has effectively walled off Gaza, uh, exacerbating that problem. So Hamas has something to prove here at the moment as well. And and then the other factor in the mix is the one of the other major militant groups within the uh, sort of Palestinian space, particularly present in Gaza, which is PIJ, Palestinian Islamic Jihad. There's some uh, reporting that they have kind of increased their stock with the Iranians. And so Hamas is trying to prove to the Iranians that they are also sort of players in the uh, in the game still. So you've got all those factors. And then the one new factor, which I think is very troubling and is possibly a sort of canary in the coal mine of, of future significant problems, is inside Israel itself, the conflict between Israeli Arabs. So important to understand, these are people who live inside Israel, who may be of Palestinian heritage, but they are Israeli citizens and Jewish Israelis. And so that conflict which has which has sort of been running in parallel with the exchange of rocket fire and airstrikes and so on has been kind of coming up to to kind of boiling point. So all these different things coming together at once, creating an incredibly combustible mix. Yeah, it's been particularly distressing to see on top of the horror, horrifying scenes in Gaza itself, the the scenes on the on streets of Israel, where you're yeah. seeing both Arab Israeli mobs attacking Jewish businesses, uh, attacking beating Jews in the street, and vice versa, uh, yeah. extremist Jewish mobs attacking Palestinians. We've heard the attacks on Jewish Israelis uh, described as pogroms by Benjamin Netanyahu and others, obviously a, a, a pretty you know, highly emotive word. But, yes. you know, th- this kind of street violence for people in Britain who are maybe not paying the fullest attention to this does seem to be new. Yeah, it is. And I think it's, you know, a lot of the responsibility here lies with Netanyahu, who has pursued these very kind of divisive far right sort of political agenda and in, in increasingly stigmatizing non-Jewish Israeli citizens. And, you know, it, it's it's not a surprise if you think how close Netanyahu and the Trump administration were, that a lot of the politics of kind of polarization, 
of nationalism, of populism. A lot of that has been present in, in Israeli politics in recent years as well. How can you see that this playing out this week? Because, you know, past experience is that, you know, there are episodes of horrific violence, which can often be lengthy, but the outside world tends to simply leave them to fizzle. That, you know, that there is no meaningful intervention, no meaningful attempt to get talks happening to impose ceasefires. There's a lot of talk, but effectively it's left to burn itself out. Yeah, and and obviously in particular, you know, the fact that the the United States is Israel's key ally, you know, sends billions of dollars of aid every year and historically is extremely reluctant to kind of put pressure on the Israelis to, um, you know, scale back their activities. That normally means that the Israelis sort of choose the point at which the operations end. However, in, in contrast, there does seem to be more of a kind of international move against this and possibly the Biden administration reflecting the evolution of the kind of demographic of support for the Democrats in America may be slightly more willing to kind of put pressure than than some some previous administrations and very obviously the Trump administration. But I don't think anything's going to finish in the, in the next couple of days. One standout uh, event the weekend was that Israeli airstrikes destroying some of the tallest buildings in Gaza, including the headquarters of Associated Press, which it was sharing with Al Jazeera and, and other organisations. Israel's argument is that when buildings are used for military purposes, they become military targets. Does that fully stand up? In the broadest principle, yes, you can make the case. Obviously, the devil's in the detail. Now, the Associated Press journalists themselves say that they have absolutely no evidence or knowledge of there ever having been a Hamas sort of military post there in that building. I'm not in a position to validate that. But in general, you know, serious press agencies tend to be extremely well informed about what's happening on the ground around them. So then it brings a lot of question marks with it. And obviously, there's always the question of proportionality. You know, if, if you destroy a building and a very minor military outpost is present in that building, the question is, is that a proportionate response? And, and that would be one that, you know, uh, lawyers might might sort of argue over. Not the most important point uh, of all, but the demonstrations in London at the weekend were produced some pretty distasteful scenes. Uh, there's been four men have been arrested for the chanting that you may have seen on social media, of a, which we probably shouldn't talk about in case there is a, a legal case around it. But just to to look at it from the point of view of, what the outside world thinks is going on here. You're kind of offered this, this this kind of straightforward choice, aren't you, between full and uncritical support for Israel or full and uncritical support for the Palestinian cause. And if you're the sort of person who thinks that Israel does have a right to exist and does have a right to defend itself, but maybe not like this, there isn't really an avenue for you. And if, you, and if, you, if you're the sort of person who thinks that the Palestinians do deserve justice and do deserve not to be blockaded and so forth. But perhaps Hamas firing rockets into civilian areas of Israel is not the way to go about that. You're just offered two extremes, aren't you? Well, I think this has always been an incredibly difficult debate for the reasons that you know we, we are obvious. But what makes it worse now is the sort of social media world. And I've certainly seen uh, the sort of the people I follow on Twitter, there's a kind of it just splits into two and you and you, you see, oh, well, they're the Israel people and they're the Palestine people. And, and I'm not saying that to discredit yeah. uh, you know, individuals there, but it, it's, it is this incredibly divisive argument, which is then made more divisive by the sort of social media world. And ultimately, because it is such a long running dispute, by definition, every side has, has sort of points in, 
in 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 the dispute that that can be can be held up as kind of uh, you know uh, as sort of outrageous behavior or things that they should be ashamed of or whatever and it just and then it just tracks on and on and on you've been keen to point out that there are other serious conflicts in the world that are maybe not attracting such attention as uh, Israel Palestine is certainly not att- uh, attracting large demonstrations on the streets yeah indeed and i think this is something because one of the things you know the awful events of the of the last week have led to around sort of 200 deaths which is you know is a terrible tragedy and and the world is completely focused on the situation in Israel and Palestine and and that's good if it means that the war comes to an end more quickly but it may not mean that in the meantime just in this year you know the war in Tigray in northern Ethiopia may have killed 50,000 people in 2021 we're only in May in Afghanistan this year about 10,000 people have died including just the other day 60 schoolgirls uh, when when there was a suicide bombing there just a month ago the president of Chad died in combat le- leading his troops in battle in a war which has gone on in that kind of region of Lake Chad, North Nigeria, for years now, in which probably 3,000 people have died this year, and, and the conflict continues. I mention these things not because then that means that, that we should ignore Israel and Palestine, but I think it would be really good if the world's media and the attention of those people that care about human suffering was looking at some of these other issues as well. We will no doubt be talking about that and much more in the podcast in weeks to come. Arthur, thanks for getting up early and joining me in the bunker. Always a pleasure. Uh, Remember, listeners, we've got new shows Monday to Thursday and Saturday. We're keeping Friday free for, oh God, what now, for your listening pleasure. And if you want to back us and support us, uh, you can go to Patreon, The Bunker Podcast. Search for that. You will discover how to get the show early without adverts. You will discover how to get fantastic merch and also our next forthcoming, upcoming live Zoom for Patreon backers only. Details will be released on that one soon. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. 